0: Told that many cultures have stories to teach their children about deception. One such story is Aesop's fable of the wolf in sheep's clothing. Are you familiar with that one? A wolf was having trouble feeding on some sheep due to the vigilance of the shepherd and his dogs, but one day it found a sheep's pelt that had been flayed and thrown aside. So it put the skin on over its own back and strolled down among the sheep. Now the lamb that had belonged to the dead sheep, whose skin the wolf was wearing, began to follow the wolf in sheep's clothing. Leading the lamb a little apart, the wolf soon made a meal of her. And for some time thereafter, he succeeded in deceiving the sheep and enjoyed plenty of hearty meals. Appearances can be deceptive, can't they? Now, I don't know about you, but the older the get. I get the more easily I think I see through some scans, at least, maybe including occasionally seeing through the deceptiveness of my own heart. Jeremiah 17, 11 warns me though, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Are you familiar with that verse? It's so important, let me say it again. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? But in addition, the Bible teaches that we have a cunning enemy in the supernatural realm who makes it his business to deceive us. So if I, with my very limited experience and intelligence, can easily rationalize sin and deceive myself, How much more easily can I be deceived by an intelligent being who studied human behavior for thousands of years? Now, Genesis 3 tells of Eve's deception, and it introduces for us the central conflict in the story of the Bible. In the first two chapters of Genesis, creation was in an ideal state. Chapter 3 tells us what went wrong, how sin entered the world and it introduces us to our enemy, the one who deceived Eve and who continues today to try to destroy us through deceit. Understanding Genesis 3 is crucial to making sense of the rest of the Bible. Chapter 3 also sets up the drama for resolution, hinting at God's solution to our sin problem. But we're going to wait to cover that important passage in our next lesson. This week, we're learning about Eve's temptation, how it was delivered and then indulged. So let's first look at Genesis 3, 1 through 5, and consider how the temptation was delivered. Genesis 3, 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Liberal Bible scholars tend to view Eve's encounter with this serpent as just figurative. But since the New Testament does speak of Adam and Eve as historical figures, there's no reason to believe that an actual serpent engaged Eve. The verse here states it to be one of the wild animals God created, and later a punishment comes upon the entire species. Now the serpent is described with the word crafty. Look at the previous verse at the end of chapter two, verse 25, it tells us that Adam and Eve were naked. Interestingly, in Hebrew, the words naked and crafty are somewhat sound alike. They sound alike enough alike that a play on words seems to be implied here. In other words, because of the woman's innocence, her nakedness, she was approached by a shrewd, a crafty creature. And we're told that the serpent spoke to Eve. It doesn't seem likely that the animals in general, or even all serpents, had the ability to communicate verbally with Adam and Eve. The fact that a real snake actually spoke to Eve on this occasion is indicative of something or someone powerful at work. Nowhere in Genesis is the power behind the serpent named, and liberal scholarship often suggests that the snake merely symbolized Eve's own inner voice. But Jewish and tradition Christian traditions insist that Satan is behind the serpent of Genesis 3. Revelation 12, 9 and 22 specifically name the ancient serpent as the devil or Satan. Well, you may be wondering, what does the Bible actually teach about Satan and the origin of evil? The 20th century Dutch-American theologian Louis Berkhof summarized the Bible's teaching about the origin of evil in three points. First, from Deuteronomy and James, God cannot be regarded as the author of evil. God cannot be regarded as the author. Second, from 1 Timothy and Jude, sin orig- originated in the angelic world almost certainly due to pride. And third, from Genesis and Romans, sin originated in the history of mankind with the transgression of Adam, for he is the representative head of all his descendants. But what about Satan? What does the Bible say about him? The name Satan is Hebrew for adversary. Devil is the Greek translation of Satan. In the New Testament, he's also called by a lot of other names, Beelzebub, the ruler or prince of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the evil one, the father of lies, the great dragon, the ancient serpent, and the devil. How and when did Satan become evil? Although many believe the heavenly beings, the angels, were created before God created the world, that gap theory that I outlined in, Genesis, in lesson one goes further, suggesting that the fall of Satan and his demons occurred earlier and is implied by what the theory calls the chaos and waste of Genesis 1-2. But the one real difficulty with that view is that according to Genesis one at the end of God's creative activity, everything he'd made was in a state of being very good. So for that reason, We should probably assume that Satan must have fallen sometime after creation was complete, but sometime before Eve's encounter with him in Genesis 3. Now, the Bible doesn't directly present a history of Satan and the origin of evil. However, there seems to be some information about his history in two Old Testament prophecies, Isaiah 14 and another in Ezekiel 28. Now, although both passages claim to be descriptions of particularly prideful human kings, a king of Tyre and a king of Babylon, in Luke 10, 18, Jesus himself applied a verse in the Isaiah passage directly to Satan. So it seems that the prophets, that God, intended to draw a parallel between the two evil human kings and the ultimate evil ruler, Satan. And if so, then we can conclude a number of things from these passages about Satan. That he was created a model of perfection, a guardian cherub known for his great beauty. That his heart became proud and he aspired to be like God. And that as a result, God threw him to the earth. The name Lucifer actually comes from that Phrase bright one or bright star in Isaiah 14. And then in 2 Peter two four and Jude 6, we read of angels who sinned and were sent to hell, saying they didn't keep their positions of authority. So those must be the demons of which the New Testament speaks. Matthew 12.24 calls Satan, Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Furthermore, Satan is depicted in Scripture as an actual creature, not just a concept of evil or a vague force like we often see in the movies. He's always portrayed in Scripture as hostile to God and working to overthrow God's purposes. He is God's enemy and the enemy of all God's children. Although not all temptation comes directly from Satan— he most certainly works to lure us away from God and his good purposes. And he's been granted power, limited power, but nevertheless power to direct our circumstances, to hinder Christian workers, to perform signs and wonders, and to hold individuals in spiritual darkness. He's deceitful, the father of lies and cunning in his attempts to deceive us about God's character and nature about life, and about what's truly good. In fact, his use of the serpent in Genesis 3 suggests his deceptive methodology. Temptation often comes in disguise. Have you discovered that? And quite unexpectedly. Well, having said all this, it's important that we also know that the New Testament is clear about Satan's limitations and his defeat. He's not omnipotent. He can only do what God permits. He's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once. And he's not omniscient. He doesn't know the future, except as God has revealed it in the scriptures. And he is a defeated foe. According to 1 John 3, 8, the express purpose of Christ coming into the world was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus triumphed over him at the cross, sealing his destruction, which God's deferred until the end of human history. Satan knows the scriptures, and it's through them that he knows his time is limited. Well, let's return to the conversation between the serpent and Eve. In the second half of verse one, he asks, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? In truth, God had said almost the opposite. They could eat from any tree except one. Once Eve heard the serpent's cynical words, she would have been wise to refuse to talk to him. Adam and Eve were to rule over all the creatures, but Eve allowed Satan to usurp her authority over serpents by listening to his suggestions. Then Eve claimed God told her not to touch the fruit of this tree. Now it is possible that Eve truly believed that touching the fruit was required out of respect for God's command, but in the context of the serpent cynicism, Rather, it seems that he just successfully evoked negative thinking in Eve, and as a result, she justified adding another restriction to the Lord's command. If so, adding to the words of God was her second mistake. Now, God had told Adam and Eve, when you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And in blatant contradiction to God's warning, the serpent told Eve, You will not certainly die. Today, Satan still outright denies God's truth. He loves to suggest we can sin and escape the consequences. Furthermore, the serpent took what was true that their eyes would be opened, and he implied that by forbidding this fruit, God was somehow withholding something from them. He sought to portray God as selfish and unfair. Satan spoke in half-truths. It it was true that Adam and Eve didn't experience physical death immediately. They did experience an immediate death to their relationship with God as they'd previously known it, as well as the certainty of impending physical death. That process of physical decay must have begun immediately. Another of Satan's half-truths concerned the opening of Adam and Eve's eyes by eating the forbidden fruit. The deception was was in his suggestion that having their eyes open would be to their benefit. Satan also stated by eating the fruit that they would be more like God. That may have been partly true. That is, if the knowledge gained by eating the fruit was more than just the experiential knowledge of evil. But the underlying suggestion was that it was to Eve's advantage to move out from under God's authority and gain this knowledge by her own devices, and that the knowledge was something to which Eve was entitled Satan's intention was to plant seeds of doubt about God's word and God's motives. God had given liberally to Adam and Eve, but Satan sought to make Eve discontent. He appealed to her pride and caused her to doubt God's love and God's goodness. So this brings us to our first principle. We have a very real and powerful enemy who schemes to deceive us into doubting God. Mm -hmm. He schemes to deceive us into doubting God. The apostle Peter compared Satan to a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Satan is a skilled deceiver. John, in John 8, Jesus said Satan was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, since Satan's a created being who can't be every place at once, it's unlikely that you and I will personally face Satan in our lifetimes. But according to Ephesians 6, There are many evil rulers, authorities, powers, and spiritual forces of evil in the invisible heavenly realms, those demonic forces. They're part of Satan's kingdom, and they most certainly are working against us. And they're eager to deceive us into doubting God. Now, you and I may think we've settled our doubts about God. We believe that he exists We've trusted Jesus to save us. We believe the Bible is God's word. Is it possible that we doubt God more than we realize? What were your immediate thoughts this week when circumstances arose that seemed to thwart you? Did you fail to believe that God works all things for your good? You may not have consciously disbelieved, But what did your behavior and your anxious thoughts reveal about your beliefs? And how did you respond to God's call to obedience in some area of your life this week? Do you sometimes, after all, fail to believe that God really knows what's best? Like Adam and Eve, are you sometimes tempted to doubt God's goodness? I'm afraid Sometimes I have been. Maybe Satan deceives us or we deceive ourselves into doubting God more than we realize. Satan's first recorded words in scripture are, did God really say? And ever since, he and his consorts have used that line in one form or another to tempt us to doubt God. The next time you face a difficulty, challenge, decision, or concern, what will you choose? Will you trust your own judgment? Will you trust appearances like the lamb of Aesop's fable and be carried off by the wolf? Will you listen to the voice of doubt? Or will you recall God's word and choose to believe him? Well, after the temptation was delivered, Eve indulged it and ultimately ate the fruit. Genesis 3, 6 says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now, 2 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 2 tell us that Eve was deceived. She found the fruit appealing as a source of food and attractive to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. Scripture says she saw. In other words, she used her own senses to evaluate the fruit's worth. It seemed good to her for the body, soul, and mind. Scholar Don Carson writes, Throughout scripture, the essence of sin is to put human judgment above divine command. Eve trusted her own judgment rather than looking to her creator to be reminded of what he'd already told her about it. A conscious decision to examine and lust over the fruit sent her plummeting down the slippery slope of temptation until ultimately she ate it. Unlike Eve, when Jesus was on earth, he evaluated temptation on the basis of God's word. Oh, Knowing scripture is so critical. So we can use it as our final authority when we're faced with temptation. The word of God is a sword for fighting our enemy. But verse 6 also says that after Eve ate, she gave some to her husband who was with her. Now, we can't know how much of the conversation with the serpent Adam actually overheard. But since the serpent used the plural you in his address, the plural word you, Adam probably overheard the entire conversation. Whether or not he overheard it, he chose to eat. And according to 1 Timothy, he did so without being deceived. Mm. There's no explanation in Genesis three about why Adam ate the fruit. Since he'd named the animals, it seems he would have known the serpent's crafty nature. The only possible conclusion is that Adam simply did not believe God's word. Wow. The New Testament says it's through Adam that sin has entered the world as the first created human being, he's the representative of the race. Since we come from a single ancestral lineage, every human being has inherited a sinful nature. Yet each of us is also responsible because we have personally chosen to sin. By the way, I'd love for you to read more about this in a letter from me, a letter you can find on the website entitled, On Salvation. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of God's standard. Romans 5 explains that just as sin came into the world through one man, that's through Adam, one man, Jesus Christ, is the source, the sole source of salvation. Even after we trust Christ for forgiveness of sins, until our bodies die, we still carry our sin nature with us. At our conversion, a new nature is birthed, but the old nature remains. The coexistence of the believer's old nature and this new nature is the reason why we experience inner conflict. Augustine, Described his understanding of man's relationship to sin in four statements. First, before the fall, man was innocent but capable of sinning. Before the fall, he was innocent but capable. Secondly, since the fall, we are not capable of preventing ourselves from sinning, not capable of preventing ourselves. Third, Jesus's death and resurrection made it possible for believers to choose not to sin. Hallelujah. He made it possible for us to choose not to sin. And fourth, one day in heaven, best of all, one day in heaven, believers will no longer be able to sin. Won't that be a wonderful day? Well, verse 7 of Genesis 3 indicates that after Adam and Eve sinned, their eyes were opened. What did the fruit actually grant Adam and Eve? What was the nature of the knowledge of good and evil? A lot of suggestions have been offered. They range from the conclusion that the fruit had no inherent property to gain any special benefit to Adam and Eve, to the conclusion that the fruit gained some real measure of wisdom beyond just the experience of sin. While Satan suggested that by disobeying God, Adam and Eve would gain wisdom, Proverbs says that humility and the fear of the Lord lead to wisdom. Adam and Eve proudly sought to gain this wisdom independently of God. You see, had they chosen not to eat from the tree, Each and every refusal of the temptation would have resulted in growth in their potential to understand the blessing of choosing good over evil. But they insisted on learning by personal experience rather than being tutored by God. Most significantly, any advantage Adam and Eve may have gained in eating this fruit was far outweighed by the negative consequences. Adam and Eve were suddenly aware of their nakedness, an indication that something within them changed immediately. For the first time, they felt exposed and they experienced fear and shame. Their eyes were open to the experience of evil. Eventually, sin always brings guilt fear, shame, and ultimately death, knowledge that God never intended us to be burdened with. You know, in our post-part, postmodern world, we're told that all truth is relative and there's no such thing as sin. We're told that we don't need to feel guilty or ashamed. According to the Genesis record, guilt and shame are are the natural consequences of obe- disobedience to our creator. Adam and Eve attempted to cover their shame by sowing fig leaves to hide their naked bodies. As we're going to see in the next lesson, their guilt and their shame couldn't be hidden. They could never have imagined the full impact of their sin. The entire human race inherited Their guilt and innumerable atrocities have been committed throughout history. Our enemy seeks to convince us that the consequences of our sin will be non-existent or minimal. He did that for Adam and Eve. He's still doing that today. That's our second principle, that our enemy seeks to convince us that the consequences of our sin will be non-existent or minimal. It's important to recognize that temptation and doubt are not in and of themselves sin. But once we indulge them, we've wandered onto sin's slippery slope. Sin always takes us further than we ever intended to go. It always affects those around us even sins we think we can keep private, will in one way or another end up hurting others. Maybe you've believed that you can steal just one little thing from your employer and get away with it. Think about that as an example. Even if your theft isn't discovered, a guilty conscience makes us irritable and impatient, and someone in our home is likely to be affected. Whether our sin is revealed in the short term or not, there will eventually be some consequence. Maybe you believe that you can ignore the needs of your parents without consequence. Do you think your kids won't notice? One day they're likely to treat you the same. That's a scary thought. You see, there's always consequences. What about that Occasional swearing, just a little peek at pornography, an inoffensive lie, or, you know, a slightly inappropriate touch. Are they really of no consequence? (laughs) If we believe that, we are indeed deceived. Once we've indulged temptation, we have no control over where it will take us or who will be affected. My friend, onto what slippery slope have you been venturing? Will you believe God's warning that the destruction from falling into the sin might be greater than you can imagine? We have a cunning enemy who's trying to deceive us, a roaring lion posing as an angel of light, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Let us heed the warning, for we are easily deceived. Father, deliver us from temptation. We are easily deceived. Even worse, we have an enemy who seeks to destroy us and to tempt us to doubt you and to, your, and to doubt your goodness. Father, we don't want to venture onto the slippery slope. Help us to learn to believe you fully, to trust you more fully in everything that you say. Deliver us from temptation for your sake and the sake of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you.